Happy New Year. Welcome to Talking Feds, Woman at the Table. And this is a year to remember. I'm Juliette Kayyem, faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and a former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. I'm Ann Milgram, professor of practice and distinguished scholar at NYU School of Law and former New Jersey attorney general. And I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, where I'm also the faculty director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. We're excited because today's guest on the podcast is Martha Minow. Martha is a university professor at Harvard University and a former dean of Harvard Law School. She has many talents, but the one we focus on today is her scholarship on how divided nations unify, including the books Between Vengeance and Forgiveness, Facing History After Genocide and Mass Violence, and almost 10 years later, published When Should Law Forgive? In late December, Martha wrote an article with the title, Can Americans Forgive One Another? We are obviously going to need to have this conversation. But first, I want to jump in with Melissa and Anne, because this is our first taping for 2021. How's it going for you? Feeling good? Yeah. I mean, 2021 is not really making up for 2020. (laughs) That way. It also feels a lot longer than 12 days. I know. In the new year. It's like 12 days feels like 12 years or something. So let me just let the listeners know we are taping almost a week since the Capitol was, you know, taken over siege, terrorism, mutiny, coup, whatever you want to call it, instigated by the president of the United States, not just that day, but obviously in the months before and the years before about the election and about his violent followers. He's off Twitter And as we speak, the House of Representatives is meeting to consider new articles of impeachment. So that's basically about 2% of the breaking news that we've had in this year. So I'm going to start with Melissa. And maybe if you could honestly just help us, tell us where we are as a constitutional matter. So let me first just say that the Constitution has really gotten a workout over the last four years. Like all of these various provisions that we don't really talk about, we often don't teach in constitutional law because no one really thinks about them. Suddenly they're all relevant again. I, I just went to do my syllabus for this upcoming semester and I had taken out impeachment, which I included for the first time last year because the first impeachment was happening. And I took it out thinking like, I'm not going to have to talk about impeachment this year. And lo and behold, here I am doing my second year of impeachment. So basically the question is, what can the Constitution do to hold the president accountable for his role? in fueling whatever happened or whatever you want to call what happened last Wednesday. And there are basically, I think, three obvious candidates for some kind of accountability. One is to resign of his own volition, and and that's obviously not going to happen. The second option is one that comes from within the executive branch, and that's using the 25th Amendment. And this one's a little interesting because the origins of the 25th Amendment are really around the prospect of a president being physically incapacitated, whether temporarily or in the longer term. So it wasn't necessarily contemplated for situations where the president is not infirm or ill, but just is not doing a good job. And it doesn't look like it's something that's going to happen right now because the vice president doesn't seem interested in invoking it. Then there's where we started last January, and it's hard to believe that we're back here again, but there's, of course, the prospect of impeachment. I think 
there is much more clarity this time around about what could be the basis for articles of impeachment. And there's certainly greater evidence that would support an article of impeachment in this circumstance. But again, the question comes down to whether or not you can have that two-thirds vote at the Senate. The thing that impeachment does that is perhaps really important in this instance and makes it preferable to the 25th Amendment is the prospect of disqualification. But then after the conviction, you can then have the Senate move to disqualify the person who has been impeached and convicted from further holding office. And that only requires a simple majority. And there is this whole discussion of whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that anyone who had previously pledged an oath to uphold the Constitution and then subsequently violated that oath by swearing loyalty to some other country, the Confederacy, and then inciting insurrection against the United States, cannot subsequently be an office holder in the United States. And again, this is a an amendment that is drafted in the wake of the Civil War. So I think there is an open question about whether this particular provision is merely a disqualification clause or whether it's intended to be a removal clause. It's a perfect storm. You've never talked about all of these things at the same time. Exactly. So let's say the president does resign, and I don't think he's going to, but let's say all of a sudden we find out Mitch McConnell has the votes in the Senate and the president basically decides I'm going to resign instead of being impeached. Obviously, I think we agree that the trial could go on without him, right? That there's precedent for, for going to trial after the president has left office. But if you didn't go through with impeachment, is there a way to get someone who resigns to be disqualified for, from future office? Like, could he consent to disqualification? I, I know this is a strange question, but I was thinking a lot of people are saying now maybe the president will resign. I personally don't think he will. But even if he did, I think that this is really, it's a key part of the conversation right now is how do you stop him from being able to run again? Well, so maybe that's a situation where Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could be used because then it actually would be functioning as a disqualification clause, not necessarily as a removal clause. So, you know, there's that aspect. But it could also be the case that, the framers intended for the political process to be the disqualification mechanism. Like if you have someone who is so bad at his job that he was compelled to resign, why would you ever elect him to public yeah. office again? So, I mean, I think there's this tension in the Constitution about limiting government power, but there's also, I think, incredible trust in the populace itself to sort of understand and know what is good for a thriving democracy. Yeah. The idea that we have to protect ourselves from him in the future, even if he were impeached or resigned, just seems like something's really off in either our party structure or, of course, the primary structure, right? I mean, you could see Trump winning again if 10 people decide to run. And so, so I think this is a really interesting point, and I've gotten lots of questions about the Constitution. It's not the case that the Constitution is the only way to address what happened Wednesday. It is a tool for addressing it, but not the only tool. There's questions about what to do about the lawmakers who seemed to be egging this on. Both houses of Congress under Article 1 have their own mechanisms for making rules to expel their members. That is an option. Um, Congress also has this power of oversight. How do we talk about the security failures that happened last Wednesday? I mean, that surely must be part of holding individuals accountable for what happened. And, and that's not a constitutional thing. That's a basic function that Congress performs over and over again. Like, what's the plan for that? So I, I think everyone's focused on this question of removal and, and what to do about the president. But there's like a satellite of other concerns that are orbiting him that we have to think about, too. 
There are so many other things happening. And one of the things, just thinking about the security, is I am astonished, and Juliet, I would be super interested to hear your thoughts on it. I am astonished that there has not been a significant federal briefing law enforcement agency. The acting U.S. attorney from D.C. spoke today, and he talked about more than 80 people have been charged, and you should expect additional, more serious charges, and the FBI is doing the biggest investigation that he knows of. All of that is great, but I was trained, and this is what we did when I was AG, that when there's bad news or there's a problem, you go out and you explain what's happening, that you are transparent and you talk about where you are. And sometimes there are things you can't talk about, but just the absolute absence of, and even the FBI official who went out today, it wasn't Chris Ray, it was the number two. And they were talking about the investigation. They were not talking about what happened because the security failure, and it is an enormous failure. It's inexplicable. And so I've come to believe that four things are simultaneously true. I mean, one is is was a massive preparation failure and that it was known it was going to be a danger. And somehow for reasons that we don't know yet, the Capitol Police did not respond with their hands tied. And the second is that, you know, a lot of the police officers, I think, saved saved a lot of elected officials' lives. That's become clear. I agree. That was the priority. Right. I mean, and you know, lots of people were making all sorts of sort of sweeping generalizations as it's happening. You're like, you had no idea what was happening inside. The third is, I do think that it's clear, at least now the Capitol Police if, and other police departments do have a violent extremism problem. And whether there was collusion or just, hey, guys, come on in, I don't know. And then the fourth is, of course, if this had been Black Lives Matter or a progressive group, there'd be lots of dead protesters. I think all four of those are true. But it all begins actually with number one, which is no one should have been surprised. I mean, you and I weren't surprised. I think I was surprised at Trump's language. I remember because I was watching the speech and I started texting people I know who work on the Hill. I said, do you see who's coming your way? But I did it like with a happy emoji. Like, I didn't even process what was going on. Yeah, a good friend of mine who's a police chief said to me the day after, the thing that we definitely all missed was the X factor, which was that this would be led by the president of the United States. And he said it just wasn't in our imagination. And and we know this from terrorism, right? That there's a lot of things that happen that are sort of other people imagine that you maybe don't want to believe could happen. One of the things I think is worth talking about with the, the mass failure of preparation is that And there are a lot of conversations we have to have about why that happened and understand deeper who was involved and what conversations were had. It's very clear there's a lot of intelligence out there of the the level of the threat. But once that happened and they were underprepared, they lost control and there was no command and control. And what ends up happening is that they had to make that pivotal choice of do we try to save the members and make sure that they're safe because we don't know what's coming in the door, but we have a feeling it's, we know there there are some armed folks, we know there's some problems, or do we try to fight this back, but we're under-resourced. And I think that led to the, the breach of the Capitol, that led to, you know, armed individuals being in the United States Congress. I mean, the Confederate flag going through. And then it also led to people walking out without arrests. It's a snowball that just has gotten bigger and bigger because of that initial failure. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the moment we're at now feels like an outer body experience in some ways, because you're like, really, we need to think about unity. I will say personally, and you both know, because I circulated a piece I just written, 
I've become no unity very quickly. I'm done. I'm done. I mean, you see those pictures. This is a terrorist organization led by the president of the United States. And you do what everyone does in counterterrorism is you got to go after the leader. You have to minimize him. You have to crush him. You have to totally make him isolated. So if you had asked me a week ago about the 25th or impeachment, I would have been, you know, whatever, just get him to the 20th. I'm so done now because I realized this won't die with him leaving the office. But I do think we cannot underestimate how important it is that he is so isolated and loses and people abandon him and he has no banks and he has no place to live and he can't raise money and no one gets his books and everything. And to me, the realization that we were in the frame of counterterrorism rather than law, politics, all of a sudden liberated me to just be like, replace him with any major terrorist organization and you know what the answer is. I think that comment, it's also really important when you talk about law and politics, because I think people go immediately to the let's talk about the cases. Let's talk about the after action reports and what went wrong. And I think you're right that we have to stay focused on the president of the United States is an existential threat to the future of our democracy and to the people of our country. And so that is number one. And then there are questions about law and politics and prosecutions that are also really important. And public health. Like this was a super spreader COVID event. Like they went to the Capitol and then the Congress had to go into isolation and individuals in Congress continued to disclaim the necessity of wearing masks. And now two members of Congress have tested positive for COVID. I also don't understand. And one is someone who I love and adore. Bonnie Watson Coleman was a state legislator when I was in New Jersey and is just a phenomenal woman. Every member who's sick, there are also a number of Republicans who have now tested positive as well. I do not understand how in the United States Capitol we can allow anyone to not wear a mask. I do also not understand how we can allow a member of Congress to walk in armed. And I just really think we have to be very seriously about what the rules of engagement should be in the people's house and how we keep everybody safe. Well, so this has been the question. Like people have talked about a national mask mandate being beyond the purview of the federal government, which is probably true. But the federal government and Congress does have the authority to pass a mask mandate for all federal property. Like they could do it for federal parks. They could do it for Congress. The president could do it with an executive order. So, I mean, it wasn't like that was off the table, even if a broader national mask mandate was. Yeah. I mean, I think I think these are all really important conversations. And I, I also agree with you a little bit, Juliet, that, you know, there's been a, this whole conversation now and a lot of Republicans have been talking about grace and unity yeah. and how are you going to unify the country? And I think it really is important to say that having grace doesn't mean we let you get away with what just happened, right? That can't be the conversation. The conversation has to be, how do we deal with what is a current and existing threat to our country? Yes. That's the change that I've undergone in the last week, which is I I have to see it through that lens. There can be no soft exit for Trump. And so whatever happens, I need it to be, honestly, I need it to be decisive. That's my worry on the 20th, that he's just sort of allowed to just sort of walk away. Exactly. And that he's just, you know, he's he's like Glenn Close in the last scene of Fatal Attraction. And you think she's gone under the tub and she's- (laughs) She she does actually die in the end. That's not the analogy. Oh, that, oh, that's not the analogy. I forgot that part. All I remember. (laughs) Okay. I need a better one. Uh, I, I think that like it's to insist on unity. Does it require impunity? 
That's exactly right. I think that's the question that we'll also raise with Martha. I think that's the challenge is we know how to move forward. It's just whether we move forward unified. Okay, now it is time for our broad topic where our producer, Jennifer Bassett, tells us about an important historical or contemporary figure or milestone in the progress toward gender equality. Today's broad topic is the story of how women fought their way into the military. The fight for women to join the U.S. Armed Forces has been a long one. Starting in 1943, World War II created a new need for soldiers and Congress decided to allow women to enlist in the Army of the United States to fill the gap. The creation of the Women's Army Corps, which enabled women to attain military rank and serve overseas, was born. But once the war ended, women would have to walk away from their military service, and many would find themselves jobless. And also, since women weren't considered veterans, they were not given benefits. But the women who had served in World War II had impressed the U.S. Army enough for them to ask Congress to allow women to become full permanent members of all branches of the military. And in 1948, President Truman signed the Women's Armed Services Integration Act into law. While the act was a milestone, it still limited women's service. Only 2% of women could serve at any military branch. The military could involuntarily discharge women who had become pregnant. They could also limit the number of women who could become officers, and women were prevented from commanding men or ever serving in combat. It wasn't until 1975 that the Defense Secretary directed the elimination of involuntary discharge of military women because of pregnancy and parenthood. Then, in 1976, women could be admitted into service academies when President Gerald Ford signed Public Law 94106. Finally, a few years later, in 1979, all enlistment qualifications became the same for men and women. It took another two decades for women to be granted the right to serve in direct combat roles, though. In 2013, Secretary of Defense Leon E. Panetta signed a document to reverse the Defense Department's ban on women in direct combat roles. This decision overturned the 1994 direct ground combat definition and assignment rule that restricted women from artillery, armor, infantry, and other combat roles and military occupational specialties. And in 2015, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter directed that all military occupations and positions were to be open to women without exception. This milestone then raised the issue of whether women should, like men, be required to register for the draft. And in February 2019, District Judge Gray Miller of the Southern District of Texas ruled that requiring all men to register for a military draft while excluding women is unconstitutional. He wrote, This case balances on the tension between the constitutionally enshrined power of Congress to raise armies and the constitutional mandate that no person be denied the equal protection of law. The government is likely to appeal Judge Miller's ruling to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. And as of now, the Selective Service System continues to register men only. Thanks, Jennifer. And now we're joined by Martha Minow. Martha is a distinguished professor at Harvard University, former law school dean there, and has thought for decades about unity and how countries get over uh, division. I know Martha personally, as we all do, from the fact that she lives just down the street, and I am really glad to have her here. So Martha, I'll start about your thinking right now. 
We don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. The House is meeting for the first time. Uh, we don't know where the impeachment leads, and we don't know how this ends, so to speak, a week and a day from now. Uh, but no matter what, we're going to get to the 20th. I don't know how. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And then we have a country that is so divided. I'm going to leave this very open, Martha, but just you know, how do you think about what comes next? Even before the insurrection last week, people have been asking that question. People have been asking that question, in fact, during the entire election season. People have been asking that question actually for the last four years. We are divided. We are so profoundly divided as a country, not just in in terms of who voted for whom, who believes what version of what happened last week, but even who believes whether they have the truth and the other people they disagree with are evil. We are very divided. Maybe there have been times in American history, maybe the Civil War that was like that, but it's within families. There is a regional difference. There are religious differences, class differences, but frankly, it's all the way through. And I think this is going to be a big challenge. We even have the challenge of people using the language of reconciliation or healing that offends other people, that they're even using that language because they have, in some people's views, been party to creating violence and terribleness. Thinking a lot about what James Baldwin said in 1963, he said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And I think we're having the terrible experience right now. So Martha, can we take a step back maybe and just think historically and longitudinally about this? You you just mentioned the American Civil War, and that was, of course, a moment of profound rupture in the country. And there was at least initially an attempt at reconciliation um, with Reconstruction, but as we know, that was interrupted, disrupted. And some have argued that what we see today is a consequence of failing to adequately reckon with the rupture of the Civil War and everything that preceded it. And we are today simply paying debts that have been long overdue. So with that in mind, and if you take that as true, what are the consequences if we bungle this moment and fail to actually have the kind of reconciliation and, and to do the work that needs to be done to move forward? Well, I think that the consequences, we are living the consequences because in many ways, as epitomized by people bringing the Confederate flag into the Capitol building last week, we're living with unaddressed conflict and trauma in this country from over a century ago. To leave the United States for a moment and think about, for example, the former Yugoslavia, one of the challenges is that when we have experiences of deep conflict that have not been addressed in a thorough way, those lie in wait for politicians and other leaders to reactivate and reignite decades later. In former Yugoslavia, people were intermarried and getting along until there were some leaders who started talking about 1530 and 1660 and stoking these intense differences. And that's like a a live wire ready to be ignited next time around. And I do think that's true in this country. And there have been people who've been stoking those fires for some time. So if we take that all as true, which I do, 
then we sort of come to this really interesting point of thinking through what is that accountability? What is that process? What does that reckoning look like? And I think you, I've been so fascinated to talk with you. You wrote a piece really amazingly at the end of December, December 21st, 2020, called Can Americans Forgive One Another? And I think you came closer to sort of seeing a lot of the extent of the division that I think a lot of us wanted to acknowledge. But now I think we're faced with this has exploded. Ken Burns described it this morning in Politico as the fourth great crisis in the United States, the Civil War being number one, the Great Depression being number two, World War II being number three, and now this, especially if we think about it hearkening back for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So how do we think about, like, what is the process that the country has to go through now to get us to the point where we can move forward, if that's possible? I don't think we can move forward as long as we don't even think that we're a we. And I think leadership can make a difference on that score. But at the moment, I don't think that people think we're a we. I think people who brought violent, unbelievable insurrection inside the, Amer- the U.S. Capitol last week believe that they were fighting a righteous war against an enemy. And until that is not stoked by people in the highest offices, and not just the president of the United States, but others, there is no we that can be summoned. I do think leadership can make a difference. I also think that a lot of the differences will ultimately have to require people who are neighbors or live in some proximate relationship to meet face to face when we're allowed to do that and to try to find commonality. It is interesting to me that Americans, even now, feel less divided in local government issues than they do in national government issues and are willing to work together on issues like garbage collection and sea rise and even COVID protections, maybe, although that one's more more charged. And I think it's because there's a practicality and it's harder to demonize people that you actually have multiple interactions with. So I think that, you know, the New York Times has called for a national commission. This is before the events of last week. Uh, I was against it at that time. I certainly think it's unthinkable at this time. But I think we will need instead accountability first. We'll need accountability for people who actually put in jeopardy the whole project of, of this being a common nation. Before accountability don't we just need to crush this like an element of this? Like, I, I think there's Trump and his enablers who I think know better the Ted Cruz's. Um, Josh Hawley. Yeah. I'll, you know, all of those people. Then there's the voters and supporters who I would put as we're a nation divided, but they're not in the pool of people that were at the Capitol. This is going to sound so harsh, but like, don't spoils come to the victors? Like if if Biden's president and and they use violence or the threat of violence to undermine the democratic process, which is what they wanted, there's no question about that. And I don't know, I just, I, I this forgiveness and reconciliation and accountability, it, isn't there like a sort of more like we won aspect to it? Or I'm sort of curious about that. You know, I talked to a a man who was very involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, Demisum Nubisa, who was himself tortured, locked up by the apartheid government for four years. And this enormous generosity of spirit. And I said to him, I don't understand. I just don't understand your your engagement with this reconciliation process. And he smiled at me and he said, 
we won. Uh, I can afford to be generous. So I I like your idea. I I think it's going to be a little bit harder for us to be certain about the winning when there are members of the Congress who refuse to wear masks and put in jeopardy the health of their fellow members. And we need a metal detector to determine if somebody is carrying a gun inside the Congress. I mean, I do think that there are multiple groups. I think you're right to start to distinguish them. I think that there are people who knowingly are lying and manipulating others for their own uh, personal or political ends. I think there are people who are vulnerable to those lies and because they have grievances and many are genuine grievances and they found a place to put them. Um, And there's going to be a sense of betrayal for them for some time and where that betrayal goes. I think then there are a lot of other people who are have views about the election or they didn't vote or whatever, but they're just struggling massively with challenges, economic, health, others. I do think that there are many people who are not even engaged in the conversation that we're having right now. And so to understand that for some people, if you ask the question about reconciliation in America, it'd be about race. It would be about police violence. It wouldn't be about what happened last week. Or it would be, frankly, about the conduct of the wars that have destroyed members of their family over the last 10 years. So I think we have many, many, many divisions. I think that the News media and the social media is another big problem here, so that people are just living in different universes. I have a book coming out this summer that deals with this issue, and uh, it, it actually became more scary to me the more that I researched how people really are living in different worlds based on where they get their news or, more importantly, what social media they use. I worry about this so much. And I also think that what last week showed us was just the depth of the division that exists. And so I guess the question in some ways is, you know, and I think probably all of us would agree, Trump is the symptom. He's not necessarily the thing. He's been able to sort of for his own ego and his own purposes to basically exploit what is a lot of concern, fear, uncertainty. And Juliet talks a lot and had a great piece in The Atlantic today about you have to neuter Trump, right? You have to basically do that because otherwise you have people continuing to follow this movement. I I won't paraphrase because Juliet will do it much better. But I do think a lot about how do we really think about the underlying divisions and to break through that if Trump is just one symptom and there could be others that sort of come later. Like, I think all the time, what if this isn't the test? What if this is like the precursor to the test? Just as people are now saying that the insurrection in the Michigan legislature was a precursor to last week and is last week a precursor to the inauguration protests and and violence that's predicted. I do think that there are groups that have been at the margins who have been empowered by the president of the United States. And that includes the Proud Boys and many who actually have been on domestic terrorism lists, as well as people who previously were just separated in their own basements, but are now joined by the internet. I think that having different leadership nationally We'll make a difference about all of that. Having law enforcement that focuses on being clear about who is a threat to the country and who isn't will be helpful. I think the statement by the Joint Chiefs today was was helpful. 
uh, about which reality are we living in. But I do think that it's healing, just as it's true interpersonally, in a family, in a community. It can't start without some sympathetic listening, without some commitment to even work on the process of rapprochement or finding the truth. The moment we have a division about whether there is a truth, whether it's worth it to do that kind of work. So even if the most extreme groups are neutralized, there's going to be long, slow, hard work about restoring the possibility, the aspiration of being a we. So, so Martha, can I push back a little? I, I'm thinking back to 2016 with the election and all of this talk about how that election was fueled by economic grievance, economic anxiety. And Flash forward to today, and it's not clear that what is fueling all of this is entirely about economic precariousness. I mean, some of the people who went to the protest at the Capitol came on private jets and were incredibly comfortable in terms of their situations. Can we even get to the point where leadership is going to be effective if we can't agree on what the source of the problem is? It, it just seems like we are casting about trying to name it and no one wants to name what might really be afoot. I think that's a really important point. And as I suggested before, but you put it better, there are many different kinds of division here. There isn't simply a division of the haves and the have-nots or even of regions or religious groups or political parties. I do think that we're seeing people who have been supporters of President Trump from the business community rapidly distancing themselves. We'll see if that lasts more than a week. If it lasts more than a week, that will be uh, telling. Uh, you know, at the moment, I think that the tech companies and some large publicly traded companies, plus the military, are acting as a check and balance. Not exactly the way our Constitution was designed. Can I ask another question then? And I'll, I'll be really honest, Martha, I want you to convince me because I want to believe. I really do. And this last week has just been a lot. And I, I really do want to believe but part of this, you know, looking at it, seeing people marching through the Capitol, calling for Nancy Pelosi's head, calling her a bitch, call, like, like so much of this seems to have a kind of race and gendered undertone and seems to be a response to a change in the leadership profile of our country. Like before we used to have leaders and they all looked alike. And now we're in this situation where Leaders may wear dresses and, you know, they may be black and black women. And that seems to be part of the anxiety. And so I wonder, like, if the question is who's going to lead us forward, can we actually get to the point of reconciliation if it is the very nature of the changing leadership model that is provoking all of this anger and resentment? I don't know that it's provoking the anger and resentment. I think that anxieties that are genuine among particularly white men, and it's across the education groups, uh, are, are real. And those anxieties are real, but they have been fanned. They have been fueled. They have been tapped into, frankly, the same way that Milosevic tapped into ancient, not vital stories about the past and made people believe that they were present, that they were still ongoing real divisions. I do think that there was, there is racism and sexism 
anti-Semitism, that all of these toxic differences are available to be tapped into at any moment. And if people have a grievance, they can be ignited. And that has happened and they've been legitimated. I mean, to see someone wearing a t-shirt saying Camp Auschwitz, again, to see the Confederate flag, which didn't never was brought inside the Capitol during the Civil War. And here it is. I mean, these are talismans of deep, deep divisions that I don't think are perpetual and eternal. You know, in, in Rwanda, again, there was intermarriage. There were people were getting along until there was a campaign sustained by leaders to tell a story about eternal differences between people. And there are differences between people, but they have to be turned into, they have to be weaponized. And that's what we've been living with, the weaponization of these differences. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what you were saying to Melissa, because I did hate crimes at DOJ. And we looked at different white supremacist groups. We looked at different anti-Semitic groups. And what you had in the Capitol were sort of what you would have been across the spectrum have looked at as the hate groups. And so coming all together behind a single identity, which is Trumpism, it was just really jarring for me. And it made me think a lot about this question of, you know, we are coming to a point where not only do our leaders look different, but our country is starting to look different. The majority of our country is not going to look like the white men who have been the president of the United States for the last hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I wonder, Martha, like, to what extent are we seeing like, populism and sort of the way Trump has done it is also a way for the minority, the sort of coming minority of people in America to hold on to power in a really divisive and awful way. But yet it is it's one of the most crass political efforts is always, you know, have an other attack others, right? Play offense. I mean, it's the Trump playbook. And how much do we deal with that when the country's just shifting, right? The leaders are shifting like that. I don't think that's going to change. I think it's just we'll have a woman president, I think, in my lifetime. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think as much as I am as more pessimistic than any of you so far, I mean, I do see this as part of long historical cycles where civilizations actually collapse around these kinds of differences. So I could get pretty apocalyptic pretty quickly. But I will say this, I don't, will not allow uh, last week's disastrous experiences to overshadow the thrill of the success in Georgia, yeah. which, which, which itself turned on building coalitions across groups that had not cooperated before. And that included Hispanics and African-Americans and white suburban voters. And it really was a thrilling counterpoint. Can you imagine how this week unfolded if the Republicans had gotten both of those seats? I mean, in the sense that I don't I I mean, I think it would have been a very, very this is pretty dark, but I think it would have been darker. I think in some in in some ways what we're seeing might be uh, with McConnell and others playing lots of games with Trump that, you know, maybe there is uh, some recognition that Georgia was significant for the Republicans to figure out what's going on with their party. Martha, you talk about accountability and I wanted to ask then about social media and this combination of hatred and aggression and sexism and racism and anti-Semitism, everything that's used together. The social media companies have gotten their act together in the last waning days of the Trump administration. But how much of where we are now as a country is based on the ability of these horrible ideas to actually 
not just cultivate, but sort of nurture each other and then grow bigger? I think quite a bit. And I think when you have the largest companies in America predicated on a business model of engagement that's built a whole profession of psychologists and nudge experts that know how to keep people engaged with the outrageous. That's the business model. And then you have the auto scroll. So the YouTube video that is mildly racist says, if you like this, you'll love this next one. That's hugely racist. As long as that's the business model and that's the reward, we don't have a chance. I do think that there will be change on this score. The self-regulation that's happened in the last five days is just a sign of how aware the people who run those companies are, that they're beyond their debt. And, you know, even Mark Zuckerberg has been calling for regulation and admitting he can't do it. He can't do it yeah. alone. Well, and he is also calling for regulation, I think, just to be a, a little bit cynical here as a former attorney general, because all the AGs come out and all the states are going to pass different models of regulation. And so he's then going to have 50 regulators versus one federal regulator. But I totally agree. Right. But I totally agree. Right. You're, you're right. I, I also think, I mean, I wonder a little bit on the question of some of the social media companies. I think they've known what a problem this is. I think they have been just very hesitant and in my view to act. And they sort of have been slowly taking steps since the election, labeling tweets, trying to figure out how to deal with it. And then up until last Wednesday, any argument they had that it's not hate speech, it's not inciting violence, that this is just words really was taken away. And so I sort of feel like I know some people have been critical of them. I think they've done the right thing. I don't think they personally, I don't think they had a choice to do this in this moment because I don't also think we talked about this a little bit before. I don't think we're out of the woods yet in terms of the potential for harm as well. And if they allow their platforms to be used, like in this moment, having seen what happened last Wednesday, I mean, there's also extraordinary liability for them. But I just hope that it sticks, that they continue to take responsibility. Well, I'm concerned because we saw with COVID the suddenly the very platforms that said, no, we can't edit, no, we can't afford to do it, found a way, surprise, surprise, that they could label falsehoods and direct people to true sources. I worry that that has not been followed until the last five days when it came to political matters. And I also worry that, I worry a lot, I worry that just as Parler was then the go-to source site, that and now Parler's down, so what's next? And the, the uh, as it gets to the darker and darker parts of the internet, it's less visible to those who monitor. And I worry about all of that. And is it like a ball of mercury and you touch it and it rolls into smaller and smaller balls? The, the thing about the internet and the thing about social media is that it's powerful only when it does connect. And so I do think that it is in their business interest to find a way to have bigger and bigger audiences. And a lot of people are turned off by what they have enabled. Uh, and so I believe in consumer pressure and, and also employee pressure, as we saw with the Google union. I mean, we're going to see uh, real divisions inside the companies if they don't behave differently. To the point about multiple sources of regulation, the U.S. Is, may end up being the lagging indicator here because we have other countries that have taken far more aggressive stands on regulation, not always in ways that we would like, but unless we can come up with some global cooperation around content regulation, around liability, this is going to be a, an ongoing problem. Well, 
Martha, since it will be an ongoing problem, we will definitely have you back. We want to thank you so much for joining us. And I really hope that you will continue to at least help guide us through whatever comes ahead in 2021. So thank you so much. Thank you. Talking Feds, Women at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Production assistant is by Matt McArdle. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. And as always, thanks to the amazing Philip Glass for allowing us to use his music. Talking Feds, Women at the Table is a production of Delito LLC. And we're looking forward to next time. Next time.